So like I said uh, last week, I felt the need to offer one more final word on the topic of our conference. My number one goal for the conference was to show the sacredness of the erotic for a church to host a discussion that was not fixated on the dangers of sexuality beyond the boundaries of God's ethic, but instead unveiled the glory of the erotic as God designed it, and I hope we were able to do that for you. However, I recognize also that yes, we are all tempted to take our sexuality where it is not intended to go. I recognize that some of us this morning find ourselves in a far-off country of erotic exploitation. And so, I did want to offer a word to the fallen sexuality, to our sexual sins in our lives. But I'm still not turning my attention to the immorality of the culture out there. Today, the attention is on my immorality, and I would highly encourage you to focus your attention on your immorality. And I think we need help. We need help, real practical help, in fighting the temptation of our sexual sins. And that's what I want this to be for us this morning. For the conference, as you know, I lean heavily on John Paul's teaching. For this sermon, I'm going to lean heavily on my favorite Puritan, John Owen. John Paul told us what to do with sacred eros. John Owen is going to tell us what to do with unsacred eros. I preached a version of this sermon around five years ago, but I wanted to revisit it again and change it in light of the discussion. Um, I did that, one, because my brain was fried this week, and I wasn't going to prepare a new sermon for you, so sorry. Um, But even more so, as I thought about it, I just don't think I can improve um, on John Owen's work, his masterpiece entitled Mortification of the sin in the believer. Mortification is a fancy Puritan word for putting to death. So, killing sin in the life of the believer. Now, like I said, I'm going to be directing this, uh, the application of this toward the sexual sins in our life, but uh, you can take the principles of this and apply it to whatever besetting sin you are facing. Um, we all have our unique struggles, and, and, and uh, sexuality might not be that I think it is to all of us in some degree, but there may be other struggles you're battling with that you can take this and apply the same principles. It, it, it works across the board. And Owen's entire work is a reflection of uh, one verse, the verse I just read for us from Romans 8. Um, this is going to be more of a topical sermon that will use several passages of Scripture, but I'm going to ground us where John Owen does in Romans 8.13. As you probably know, Romans 8.1 begins with that famous declaration, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But interestingly, after Paul makes that declaration, he immediately moves into a section about putting to death the sins that Jesus has already put to death on our behalf. And he is deadly serious with that expectation of killing our sins, literally deadly. He uses a play on words here, to set up a life and death juxtaposition. He says, if you live 
according to the flesh. That's Paul's go-to word for the sinful nature. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So John Owen famously summed up that verse this way. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. John Owen is going to show us how to kill our sin this morning. And I'm specifically thinking, again, through the lens of sexual sins. What I've, what I've done for us is consolidate Owen's dense essay. I commend it to you, but Owen is probably the hardest Puritan to read. Um, it's very dense. So what, I, what I'm going to do for us is take his essay and, and basically consolidate it down into four practical principles for us in the issue of our own repentance. If after a conference of lofty ideas, you are craving some practicality, this sermon is for you. Four very practical principles, fittingly organized. I'm going to organize them around the acronym KILL. K, knowledge. I, intensity. L, labor. L, love. Killing the sexual sins in our life requires all four. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take a passage of Scripture to ground us with each of these, and then I'll also be using passages from Owen's work to expound on them. K, knowledge. When I say knowledge, I specifically have in mind Owen's emphasis on knowing the nature of sin. In Genesis 4, after sin is first introduced into creation, the Lord says something very interesting to Cain. He says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Not you must resist it, you must say no to it, you must flee from it. God says you must rule over it, as if sin is this enemy to be conquered. So if sin is an enemy to be conquered, then we need to understand the ways of our enemy. We need to know our enemy. Whether something as trivial as Coach Cal studying film of our next opponent or something as serious as military leaders in Ukraine right now seeking to understand the strategy of Russian forces. We all know the importance of knowing the ways of our enemy, knowing what we're up against. And this is true in spiritual warfare as well. So Owen focuses a lot of his essay on the ways of sin, on the ways of our enemy. But I'm going to sum up his observations to two things. We must know about our sin. Sin is personal and it is progressive. Let me show you what I mean. Our sin, our sinful nature is personal. And and by that I mean it is far more complex than we realize. Um, Yes, of course, there is the generic original sin, fall of man, that applies to all of us. But the way that manifests in our life is unique. Our stories are unique, our struggles are unique, our weaknesses are unique, and we need to get to know the uniqueness of our sinfulness. Owen says it like this, when a lust falls in with natural constitutions and temper, with a suitable course of life, and with occasion, that lust grows violent above all others. Here's what he's saying. When temptation comes into contact with our natural constitution, meaning our temperaments, who we are as a person, with a suitable course of life, meaning our story, the way we have been formed, 
and with occasion, meaning the timely opportunity and temptation to sin. When those three align, it is a recipe for disaster. He goes on to say this, this is the folly of most men. They set themselves with all earnestness and diligence against the manifestation of sin, leaving the root untouched, perhaps even undiscovered. I cannot overemphasize the significance of understanding the root, of understanding yourself, the, 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 the deeper thing that is going on that Owen is speaking of when it comes to putting sin to death. Do you have the courage to get to know yourself? If we keep on ignoring, if we keep on suppressing, if we keep on hiding, then we will never be killing. So how do you discover yourself? Well, you can't by yourself, unfortunately. The Bible views our hearts as deceptive. Owen says straight up that we deceive ourselves. I am prone to lie to myself about myself and then believe those lies. So self-introspection by itself may end up deepening my own deception. According to the Bible, internal discovery comes through external means. If you want to know yourself, don't ask yourself. Ask others. Ask those closest to you. Your spouse, your children, your family, your friends, those closest to you. Ask those ordained. God gave you pastors, ordained ministers to help you know yourself. Get with Mark and say, Mark, I want to get to know what's really going on inside. He can help you. Ask those uniquely gifted and trained. A professional therapist could benefit you. The point I'm making is you have to understand the why behind your sexual temptation. When it comes to pornography, for example, it's actually not merely eroticism that makes it so alluring. So many turn to that illicit online world as an escape from their unique struggles. Your insecurities, your shame, your failures, your disappointment, your discouragement, your discontentment, your boredom. Pornography lies to you by presenting itself as the cure to these deeper issues, but it never delivers on those promises. It offers a temporary reprieve, but then leaves us these problems only deepened. And so you turn again, hoping to find a cure, but it's only worsened, and so the cycle of pornography usage goes. Let me show you what I mean practically. Let me give an illustration that every man to some degree resonates with. Men are deeply insecure and tend to feel like failures in life. Well, pornography is a world that you can enter into where for a brief moment you are the man. A world that in many ways worships at your feet, obeying the whims of your fantasies. But then after, you feel even more pathetic and insecure, and a failure. And so you return again, and insecurities deepen, and so you return. You get the point. Well, what if you dealt with the actual insecurities that drive you to porn? What if you learned to see yourself the way the Father sees you, a beloved son with whom he is well-pleased? What if you believe that God is not disgusted with you, not disappointed with you, he is proud of you? Well, then porn loses 
its allure. You see what I mean? I could do the same thing with something like discontentment. That's a big one the ladies among us struggle with. Discontentment in marriage, discontent in singleness, just boredom and blah with life. Well, pornography is a thrilling world where you are wanted, adored, a wild and uninhibited world versus the real world where you can't remember the last time you were even asked out on a date. And I'm not just talking to the singles among us. Your husband isn't asking you out, isn't pursuing you. There's no thrill in your marriage. He's just disengaged on the couch watching TV and the thrill of porn awaits. Your indulgence. But that only makes your real life even more blah. No marriage can live up to that. And so you return to porn and so the cycle goes. The point I'm making is you're going to have to deal with the personal discontentment itself. I think you get the point. Sin is personal. The other thing we need to know is that sin is progressing. Temptation is ever before us, but what is so important to understand is that the strength of temptation is not always the same. In other words, sin progresses in power and in strength. Here's what Owen says. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism, might they grow to its head. Therefore, rise mightily against the first action of thy distemper, its first conceptions. Suffer it not to gain the least ground. Do not say, thus far it shall go and no further. If it have allowance for one step, it will take another. Here's what he's saying. Sin is constantly growing in strength and it will continue to do so if it has allowance. Inappropriate thoughts turn into flirtatious actions, turn into hidden texts, turn into a seemingly harmless dinner or coffee date together, turns into full-blown adultery. And then you come to your senses and say, I have to stop this. Well, I have news for you. It is exceedingly more difficult to put to death an affair than it would have been to put to death an inappropriate text. Exceedingly more difficult to put to death a lifestyle of deception and a web of lies than that first temptation to deceive. So here's the obvious application to quote Owen. Rise mightily against the first act of thy distemper. Do not play games with your sin. We dabble, we flirt, we experiment, we hide, we try not to let it get out of control, and all the while this thing is growing in strength and power. Something stirs in you from seemingly harmless picture on Facebook or Instagram, which leads to fantasy in your mind, which leads to a Google search about that lust for just a quick indulgence, which leads to hours of binging online. Owen's point is to put it to death at its inception. If you don't want to view pornography, delete Instagram as the pathway to pornography. And if you've taken these measures and you are experiencing a level of victory over your sin, Owen says, never assume you have victory. Instead, kick your sin while it's down and weak. This is how Owen describes the notion of victory as sin. Such a one never thinks his sin is dead because it is quiet, 
but labor still to give it new wounds every day. So knowledge. You need to know your enemy, and your enemy is both personal and progressing. All right, I, intensity. The rest will not be as long. Intensity. Jesus says in both Matthew 5 and 18 regarding sexual sin, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, of course, we don't take our Lord's language here literally, but we do take his principle literally. It will take extreme measures, extreme methods, extreme efforts to kill our sin. Sin never dies of natural causes. Therefore, severity is the only disposition in this fight. One of the consequences of living lives of ease and comfort, where our biggest frustrations is slow traffic or something, is that we don't have a category for extreme, uncomfortable, disciplined striving. Everything is so easy and it's getting easier by the day. The problem is there is no easy remedy to sin's temptation. Sins will only be put to death by extreme fighting because to be honest with you, this is the temperament of your tempter. Owen says this, If sin be watchful, strong, always at work in the business of killing our souls... And we be slothful, negligent, foolish, and proceeding to its ruin, can we really expect a comfortable outcome? There is not a day, but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed upon, and it will be so while we live in this world. Sin is always acting, always conceiving, always seducing, always tempting, and so do you make it your daily work to kill it. Be always at work while you do live. Cease not a day from this. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You see his point. Your enemy never takes a day off. Spiritual warfare never has to cease fire. And so neither can you. We aren't playing games here. Our culture breeds lazy people, but we must refuse that tendency inside us all. We will have eternity in heaven to rest from our labors against our sin. We cannot afford that luxury now. When sin leaves you alone, you are free to leave it alone. Until then, we must wake up every day with an extreme resolve about us. And when I say extreme, I have in mind, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye measures. Perhaps you need daily accountability. Perhaps an entire relationship needs to go away. Perhaps an in television, a computer, a smartphone. Maybe you can't have a smartphone in this world. That is still possible, by the way. Perhaps an entire change of career. I'm talking things that nobody would understand unless they were someone who is, has an equal passion to see their sin put to death. Perhaps it's finally admitting it has gotten out of hand and you need serious, intensive, professional help. For some, the most extreme measure you can take is to finally lay down your pride and admit this is out of control and I need help. Owen says this about addiction. When lust hath lain long in the heart corrupting, festering, cankering. It brings the soul to a woeful condition. It has grown familiar to the mind and conscience. 
such that you don't even startle at it as a strange thing. In such a case, an ordinary course of mortification will not work. 21st century application to the wisdom of Puritan John Owen, you might need to go to rehab. I don't know what it's going to look like for you, but this much I know, God is calling you right now in your life to do something crazy, to do something extreme that others will think is crazy. So be it. Do it anyway. They'll think it's crazy. God will think it's beautiful. Knowledge, intensity, L, labor. When I say labor, I have in mind a mundane labor within your life. Matthew 12, Jesus tells an interesting parable. When the unclean spirit had gone out of the person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. What a strange parable. What is he talking about? The principle is that if you expel evil from your life and then don't turn around and fill it with righteousness, the evil will return even stronger. Simply put, the killing of sin must be accompanied by the cultivation of righteousness. So how do we fill ourselves with righteousness? Well, Owen recognizes what the Bible makes so clear, that God has ordained ways in which he can be found, ways in which we can fill ourselves with the righteousness of God. So he says, spiritually sick men cannot sweat out their, their distemper with effort. There's nothing in religion that has efficacy, but there are means by which God has appointed. In other words, you can't white knuckle this thing with religion, but God has ordained means where his help is found. We must implore these means of grace. The most extraordinary thing you can do in your fight with sin happens to be the most mundane thing you can do. A life laboring in the ordinary disciplines of the Christian life. You need to learn how to pray. You need to read your Bible. You need to be in fellowship in community. I cannot overemphasize how powerful these seemingly boring habits are, and you must labor in them. You must make them central to your life. And you know the easiest way to make sure that takes place? Order your life around the mundane habit of Sunday worship. Of course, of course, make personal habits the means of grace, but be uncompromising in the corporate habit of worship. Go to church. I'm clearly speaking to the choir here, so maybe I'll look at that camera. Go to church. Come back to church. We love you. We miss you. But your soul misses this place. Now listen, church, you may not notice, but the ordinary labor of going to church is saving you from so much evil. Knowledge, intensity, labor, finally love. You must fight your sin with the power of love. Specifically, God's love for sinners. In your fight to kill sin, never, ever, 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 
ever forget the love of the one you have sinned against. It's been a heavy couple weeks, this church, I think we can all agree. And I know it has probably stirred a lot of guilt, past regrets, present regrets, a lot of shame in the area of our fallen sexuality where we feel these things the most. Can we just take a moment and breathe? A moment to bask in the good news of what God has done to our sexual sins. I want you to just, no note-taking, just listen. Let me tell you. I'm not going to tell you. The Lord thy God is going to tell you. Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions, our sexual transgressions from us. Isaiah 1, come, let us reason together, declares the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Hebrews 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down because there's nothing left to do. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Acts 13, let it be known to you, dear brothers and sisters, that through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is now proclaimed to you. John 19, it is finished. Any attempt to put sin to death while forgetting that sin has been put to death in Jesus Christ is in vain. Never forget the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what John Owen, the extreme Puritan prophet known for his fierce hatred for sin, says is the greatest sin that you can commit? I'll let him tell you. The greatest sorrow and burden that you can lay upon your heavenly Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is to not believe that he loves you. In all your battles, in all your struggles, In all your failures and successes, never for one second can you forget that God loves you and has forgiven you of every past, present, and future sin. If you want to strengthen the power of your sin, then believe that you are not forgiven of that same sin. I don't care what you've done. I care, but I don't care in this way. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how abominable your actions have been. I don't care how addicted you are. I don't care if you have destroyed your life and the life of those you love. I still have the audacity from this pulpit to announce your sins, though yes, indeed, they are many, his mercy is more. You're not allowed to say you've used up your chances. You're not allowed to say he won't receive you back. You're not allowed to say it's too late for you. God gets to make that call, not you, and he has already made it. He loves you, he has died for you, and his arms are wide open as we speak. Now, what you will discover 
in the sweetness of God's love is not just consolation in the fight, but strength for the fight. This is what Owen says one more time. I turn to Owen. Bring thy lust to the gospel, not just for relief, but for conviction. Look on him whom thou hast pierced and say to thy soul, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? What can I say to my dear Lord Jesus? How shall I hold my head before him when I harbor sin in my heart? Was my soul washed that room might be made for new defilements? What a haunting question. What can I say to my dear Lord Jesus? The one thing I cannot say is thanks for the grace. Now I get to sin. No Christian talks like that. Instead, grace does the opposite for us. It doesn't lead us to an indulgence of sin, but a loathing of sin. Nothing will cause you to hate your sin more than to see him bleed for your sins. What can we say to our dear Lord Jesus? All we know to say is thank you. Forevermore, thank you, Jesus. And now my life's devotion is to kill the sin that killed my Jesus. Let me pray. Stir repentance, O God. Fill us with your love and kindness that leads to repentance. Lord, I pray that because of this sermon, someone will finally get help. Because of this sermon, profound changes in life will be made. Because of the sermon, extreme measures of repentance. Lord, that marriages might be rescued, that out of ruins you might bring beauty. Lord, we trust you. Spirit, we trust you. Application is your work. We just beg of you for application, led by you. So we come to your table. Fill us with your love and teach us to hate that which caused your suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.